you know, we think of the Pacific garbage patch, which is not in our area, um, but we easily could have one of those areas if we continue to act in regards to not caring for our environment. What's the Pacific garbage patch? So the Pacific garbage patch is um, a huge area in the Pacific Ocean to where this collective of trash has come together. Um, they say you can see it base. Um, it is that big and it's an issue. Uh, you know, there's, you know, that microplastic being broken down and going into the fish that we consume. Then we have microplastics within us uh, with having abundance of plastic in the body of water that also is a breeding ground for bacteria. Um, so there's a lot of negative things that come from those areas. Uh, but it's it's very important that we take proper actions to reuse our things so that it's not just going directly to the landfill or we try our best to recycle. And it's not the easiest, even in the area that I live in now. Um, we don't have a recycling system that comes to our house. Welcome to the Egg Gap Evolution Podcast. I'm your host, Mariah Phillips. You can call me Mariah because that's my name. And I'm thrilled to have you on this journey with me and all of the spectacular guests who jump on the podcast to give you more options for educating children so that children have more options for building a magnificent future. The Egg Gap Evolution Podcast is a digital community where parents, educators, and innovators drop the details on how they are using their lives to help children explore the vastness of education beyond the textbook so that we can close America's education gap together. And just in case you didn't get the memo, producing a podcast is a whole lot of work. We're talking schedule coordination, production, the list goes on and on. So in return for bringing you this show every week, we just ask that you always find a way to share and use what you learn on the podcast to enrich children and families everywhere. Alrighty, without further ado, come along with me to meet our very next guest. Charles Johnson III was born and raised in Neptune, New Jersey. He completed his undergraduate degree at Virginia Union University in Richmond, Virginia, where he was immersed in African-American heritage and energized by a commitment to excellence and diversity. He is currently pursuing a master's of education in science education at the University of Lynchburg and developing a career in environmental education to promote interactions between human systems and natural systems. Charles is currently a graduate assistant for Office of Equity and inclusion, um, student diversity, and belonging. Charles' current role is the upper education manager. He teaches physical, biological, and informational sciences to help communities realize the benefits of a healthy environment with the James River Association of Amherst County at River Edge Park. Do you own, lead, or advise a K-12 education-focused brand and need help with marketing? In addition to being the host of this podcast, Mariah leads a team of passionate and experienced marketing professionals who are eager to help manage your SEO, content marketing, email marketing, and social media marketing initiatives. Whether you're a seasoned organization, startup, or still in the ideation phase of business, we offer tiered services and consulting that help you advance your mission. Please visit edgapevolution.com, which can be found in the show notes to learn more. Now, back to the show. I remember when I was younger and, um, you know, not every young person is like me. And even some older people may think like this, but I would just walk past the river. You know, I would just walk past the river. I live in Baltimore. We have a harbor. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the harbor. You know, it wasn't like anything that I really considered to be important. It's like, okay, yes, there's a trash can. That's the river. That's a tree. So why do rivers matter? Yes, that is. And you're not the only one. Uh, I see that a lot with all the students that I work with. Um, and my work started in Richmond. So, you know, similar urban environment to the Baltimore area. Um, so it's very common that that happens. Um, the river is very important for a lot of things, but mostly as it's a water source for millions of people. And specifically talking about the James River, uh, the James River itself is a water source to millions of people throughout the James River watershed. Uh, and that's similar to all bodies of water. So all of the major rivers, or as we call them, tributaries to the Chesapeake Bay are feeders to many sources of drinking water to millions of people. So thinking about that, I think that's the most important because we are 
75% plus of water as a human being. So without water, we wouldn't be here. Um, And then thinking about all of the organisms and life forms that that body water supports, um, thinking about Baltimore, how big the seafood industry is. The same for the James River, as well as the greater Chesapeake Bay watershed. So it's so important for us as humans, but also the nourishment of us humans. We're getting our blue crabs, our oysters, uh, many different fish species from those bodies of water. So those are the two major. And then we kind of switch to the mental health side. It is so important for us as humans to be able to get out and see bodies of water. It is calming. It is relaxing. Um, and then you have the recreational side as well. So you have that physical uh, realm that you can be in if you're paddling, if you're hiking, if you're biking. So the James River, the Chesapeake Bay, all of its tributaries are very important for all of those things. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, and I really like the part that you brought up about the mental health component. I was talking with somebody recently. Um, we were saying how, like, when we go by water, we just feel calmer or, you know, um, sounds of rain or waves, like help people to go to sleep at night, that sort of thing. Um, and while the James River isn't necessarily like the, you know, the Atlantic Ocean, it's not necessarily like crashing up waves against uh, things. I think that's an important um, thing to mention, especially you know, COVID's gone, but uh, when COVID was here, a lot of people did turn to nature for a place to like collect themselves and, you know, find some sort of peace or um, respite. So it's clear after what you said that like the river is more than just another thing that's next to us. It's really a life source. It is, yes. Another thing that isn't isn't uncommon, at least that for me to hear um, is people saying, okay, well, I got to clean the river, you know, <laughs> isn't that the government's job? Don't we have, you know, doesn't Richmond or wherever um, else that, that James River flows through? Don't they have people taking care of this? Why isn't this something that someone else is doing? Why do I as a citizen or a child need to roll up my sleeves and get involved? Um, could you speak to that? Of course. So I take it into the hand of the analogy. Once you're pointing a finger at an individual, that's just one finger, but you still have four others pointed back at yourself. So if we want anything to change in the natural world, in the political world, in the at-home world, we have to take action. And yes, so in the organization that I work for, we have 30 plus employees compared to millions that live in our watershed. So yes, there are organizations, there are state governments that do have that as a responsibility, but it just is unmatched. If every person puts a piece of trash down, there's no way that everyone from my organization or the state government or even the federal government would be able to pick that up. Um, So it's so important. If we want to see change in these environments, we have to actually be the change. So with that being said, You know, days like Earth Day are phenomenal. Days like Martin Luther King Day, days of service are so very important because it allows people to take the time to get out there and take action. Um, And that's all that we are about here at the James River Association. We are about the action. So, you know, we need individuals in our watershed and the greater Chesapeake Bay watershed to get out there to just pick up a piece of trash. And I would say the most important thing, if everyone would be able to do this, would be pick up after your dog. There is so much bad bacteria that is in our dog waste, and it is pretty gross to have to pick up after someone else's dog. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. So if you could just go outside with a plastic bag or whatever type of bag that you're going to carry to pick up after your dog, that's huge. Um, so yeah, it's just, I would say not impossible, but it's improbable to put that on the shoulders of a conservation organization to pick up after everyone. And yes, in my younger years, I was a litterer. Um, but then it, that was kind of the thought that I had, well, there's trash man, there's people that work for the city, uh, they can do it, but there's just not enough of them. Um, and as we know, uh, funding is an issue. So, you know, they don't get paid enough to do my work and your work and everyone else's. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And um, especially what you said about uh, days of service day or MLK day or Earth Day, because I know that with uh, things like conservation or keeping the space that you live in clean, um, it can feel like an overwhelming thought for people. Like how, you know, how am I supposed to get all this trash up? But there are, you don't have to every day. It'd be nice if folks could do it every day. But, you know, if you just take care of, choose a day, see what's going on in your community. Um, yes. Like organizations like yourself. And I'm pretty sure every, almost every city in America has something similar where you can get involved and, you know, make a difference, even if for just one day. Or like you're saying, in your everyday life, you know, make a point to pick up your dog's waist. <laughs> Or you, know, you have that Cheeto bag. Just wait, wait till you get home. It doesn't have to yeah. be thrown out your car window just yet. Yes, um, <laughs> my, I tell you, my car looks terrible because I'm so willing to just throw it in my car once I get to a trash can and then put it into a proper receptacle. Um, and a lot of people are so fixated. Oh, I can't keep that in my car. Well, it's either your car or our Earth. So yeah. another concept. I think of always is, you know, a lot of people say like, think globally, um, but really you should think globally, but act locally. That is the most important. You know, we think of the Pacific garbage patch, which is not in our area, um, but we easily could have one of those areas if we continue to act in regards to not caring for our environment. Okay, what's the Pacific garbage patch? So the Pacific Garbage Patch is um, a huge area in the Pacific Ocean to where uh, this collective of trash has come together. Um, they say you can see it base. Um, it is that big and it's an issue. Uh, you know, there is, you know, that microplastic being broken down and going into the fish that we consume. Then we have microplastics within us uh, with having abundance of plastic in the body of water that also is a breeding ground for bacteria. Um, so there's a lot of negative things that come from those areas. Uh, but it's it's very important that we take proper actions to reuse our things so that it's not just going directly to the landfill or we try our best to recycle. And it's not the easiest, even in the area that I live in now. Um, we don't have a recycling system that comes to our house. We have to mm -hmm. take it to a distribution center. It's, it's tragic, of course, as that, um, you know, that uh, trash patch is. I think anybody watching this is a good visual to go see. I'm going to look it up because I think that something like that really illustrates the impact that um, you know, littering not being such a big deal is a big deal. You know, it's a big deal and it and it accumulates and um then it's something that we have to deal with as a planet so that you so you can see from space. So um I'm wondering, so you know, you know, you've spit out a lot of facts about, you know, the environment, the things that you're doing. Um we we'd love to hear more about your story, Charles, because it's very, I don't want to say unusual, but you don't see it much as a, a Black man being in the environmental space and then working with kids in the environmental space. I'm wondering what your journey was uh, to getting to this point where you're working with the organization and what inspired you to say, hey, I'm going to run with this. I love to share my story just because it relates to so many youth that I talk to in regards to, you know, some people know what they want to do from birth. Um, I have a very good friend ever since we became friends in the third grade. He knew he was going to be a dentist and now he's a dentist. My mm -hmm. story did start. So I was born and raised in New Jersey. Um, I was born into a family full of outdoorsmen from working on cars outdoors to camping to fishing, just loving to be outside. Mm -hmm. And then that transitioned to me playing sports and I loved to play sports. And I seen that to be the catalyst for me going to higher education. Um, just to be transparent, I wasn't the A student. I wasn't a valedictorian. Um, I passed uh, and mm -hmm. I got there. And as they say, if you graduate number one in your class as a doctor or number 100, you're still a doctor. I'm right. not there yet. Working. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that transition to me going to the Virginia Union University um, okay. and I did an undergrad in criminology and criminal justice. Okay. Um, Kind of like how did you go from there to here so yeah that just continues um with i thought i wanted to serve the community in the realm of law enforcement um and then seeing 
through internships and actual experience, that wasn't how I wanted to serve my community. Okay. So I'm a senior in college and I'm like, well, now what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I see it so often. I'm like, it's okay. Like you don't have to know what you want to do for the rest of your life at 22 or 18. Yes, you do or not. <laughs> no, you can continue just to almost roll with it. Yeah. So then there, uh, my wife also went to Virginia Union University and she was doing a term of service with the Chesapeake Bay um, Foundation. Um, and then from there, I was like, OK, maybe I can do like another internship after undergrad. So then I looked into the uh, AmeriCorps program. Okay. So is essentially the domestic peace corps and there's many realms of americorps um but the term of service that i went to in was the virginia service and conservation corps and i was working in virginia state parks doing all aspects of conservation from seeing again that law enforcement side like oh, do i want to go into this law enforcement um, and then from maintenance to logistics to um, water quality monitoring, invasive species removal. And where I fell in love was in interpretive programming. So interpretive programming is essentially interpreting something in the natural world for the viewers. Um, and you can range that from those at the high level of a master naturalist um, to a very O level of a student just coming with their family to the park. Then I really okay. found, um, I've always loved herpetology. So the study of reptiles and amphibians and then sharing my passion for that with people because a lot of people are afraid of snakes and, you know, everyone thinks they're out to get you. And that really is the, the gap. Bridge. Are they not? <laughs> they're not. They're not. They would much rather eat mice, rats, toads, whatever else that they eat then chase a human for sure okay uh, so yeah that just kind of spiraled into okay i think i found my niche of like working with people providing this information in regards to the natural world mm-hmm. and after that term of service um i became friends with um uh, essentially, they brought their group of students out, and this organization was called the Blue Sky Fund, and they okay. worked in the inner city Richmond area, working with a variety of age groups, um, getting kids comfortable outdoors, teaching environmental education to students. And he was like, well, you seem like you're really good at this. You connect well. Your teaching style, all this is going so well. Why don't you look at working with us after you finish this term of service? So I did. Okay, cool. Um, And that kind of was my first environmental educator position. Uh, And then from there, I was like, I still need some hard science information. Um, Mm -hmm. And I consider myself a lifelong learner to where I'm always wanting to know the newest current information. Um, And things are always changing in the science world. So then um, I worked with them for six months. And then another term of service came available with AmeriCorps. And um, I went back on their natural resource crew with the Virginia Service Conservation Corps. And what I did there essentially was like the invisible work uh, to where we were maintaining trails. We were maintaining the water chemistry, testing different parts of water quality. Uh, We were adding habitat. We were doing all the things that make parks great. But you never really see those people doing those things. Yeah. Um, What are you guys doing at night? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, we're just in the middle of the woods where no one else is. Uh, (laughs) That was a phenomenal experience and really gave me the hard skills and the hard information for being able to articulate on behalf of the natural resources that we're working in. And then that term of service ended and I was like, all right, now what? Uh, and kind of in the interim, like of all these spots, I was working in the Jewish Community Center in Richmond and I uh, took a program director job at Camp Hilbert, which really now allowed me to take that like managerial piece. So I have the hard okay. time. I have the environmental education, but now I'm able to create programs for hundreds of kids. Mm-hmm. I'm also able to manage people. 
Um, so that was a really good position that then led into my first full-time job with the James River Association as an environmental educator. So okay. that built, that built, and I worked with the James River Association for many of years in the Richmond area. Um, and then I did take a slight pivot working for a conservation organization up in New Jersey um, to where I was back home uh, in my backyard, not really in my backyard, I was down in South Jersey. So it's like an hour okay. away. Yeah. Essentially my <laughs> uh, that was super fun. And then I pivoted back to the James River Association. And now I'm in the current position as the upper education manager, uh, which is based in the greater Lynchburg area. My office is actually in, in Amherst County. So just okay. on the other side of the James River and um, the upper watershed. So that is a very short synopsis of the grand story of Charles Johnson. Um, but yeah, I just love sharing that because it is so real to many people. Like yeah. we all don't know what we really want to do for the rest of our life. Uh, and I'm continuing to learn and the story is continuing. I'm currently pursuing uh, my master's in science education over at oh, the university. Great. Thank you so very much. Because um, again, we just have to continue to learn. Science yeah. is changing. Um, and if we want to elevate ourselves, it starts with education. Yes, I believe that wholeheartedly. And I think it's so important that whether you are listening to this, watching this, and you're a parent, educator, innovator, maybe even a student yourself, um, how it's okay. Like it's normal. It's not just okay. It's normal to be a lifelong learner. And it's normal to want, think that you may want to do something for a certain amount of time or actually want to do a specific thing for a certain amount of time. And then one day say, this ain't it no more. <laughs> and then, you know, pivot to something else or try and explore and um, really, which is what this podcast is all about. It's very, it's awesome and inspiring that you can attest to that firsthand, you know, being like, okay, what am I going to dig into? Um, your wife was in kind of like in this area and you know, you're saying, hey, this is something that's in front of me, because a lot of times the things that we need to get into may be right in front of us, <laughs> but they're just not something we're used to. Um, you know, here's something right in front of me. I'm going to dig into it. And this led to this career where, like, at this point, you've probably helped thousands of children, if not thousands of people, um, learn more about nature, but also more about themselves, because we're a part of nature. So yes. um, yeah. that is really cool. And it's so important. Um, and as you touched on, too, like being an African-American male as well as indigenous to this land, I've been a trailblazer. As you said, there are not many people that look like us in this realm. And, mm -hmm. you know, we can talk about that for several hours of why. But yeah. being comfortable, being that trailblazer, being the only person, being authentic, being mm -hmm. your true self is so important. Um, because I could have leaned away like, yeah, I like to be outside, but I'm the only one that looks like me. So should I be here? And you yeah. really start to think more about if I belong. And yes, we do belong. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the ones that built this country. We are the ones that were outdoors. Right. And I understand if you don't want to be there anymore, but this is a welcoming space. We need more people because as an educator, I am the face of this. And if little Johnny looks like me and now he sees, oh, Charles can do it. Oh, I hear Charles' story. You know, now that could be me as well. I never thought that I could be an educator. You know, right. now I'm an educator. And I did have that same thought growing up. Like, you know, I'm not the best student in this class. So how can I? But continuously work. Uh, continuously learning, you can really do everything that you set out to as long mm -hmm. as you can stay driven and focused. And when you are uncomfortable, that's when you're growing. So I always tell students, like, lean into that discomfort because that's yeah. where you're going to grow. And I love articulating on behalf of my community but it will be so much easier for the younger generation to come into this and have a cohort that looks like them. Uh, mm -hmm. But you just step into those boots and yeah. be willing to represent your community. Um, and I need help. I can't do it all. Um, so anyone that's listening or viewing today, uh, be willing to come out and join and learn more. And if you just love being outside, you'll be surprised 
If you love that, you can really love a career in outdoors as well. Representation is just so important. And it's the thing where I always say, even if the child sees someone like them for one field trip and they forget about it, and then they have a midlife crisis at like 35, you know? Yes. And they're like, oh, wait, you know? I went to this field trip and I saw this guy and he was doing this and like, let me try it out. You know, for kids, those and adults, you know, us as humans, those memories come back and those experiences matter. And um, it's, I think, like you said, it's uh, with this podcast and this community is about innovation and pioneering. So thank you for pioneering in um, this space and for the adults who are watching this, you know, as innovators, as people who are, we live our lives in uncharted territory. Um, it's always good to see, you know, uh, if you're at a moment where you're like, what in the world am I doing? It's always good to, you know, see and hear still relatable stories of people like Charles, uh, yourself, Charles, who were like, I'm going to be in this space and I'm going to belong to it, um, even if it may look like I don't belong. So could you jump into a little bit about the programming? Like, how do you, I mean, uh, Granted, you know, you have so many years of how to formulate programs, so there's no way we could learn all of that from this podcast. But how do you guys decide, like, what your program is going to be? How does, how does that look? What, what's going on over there right now? Everything that we're teaching correlates to the standards of learning. Um, so Maryland, Virginia, every state has a set of standards that in the science classes, the teachers are teaching uh, to hit these goals and objectives, um, and then they're test on uh, throughout different years, depending on what school system that they're in. So what we do essentially is we reiterate what they're already teaching in the classroom. We are redesigning what is in the textbook and how to learn that outdoors. Okay. That the simplest way that I can say how we tailor our education. Um, and with that being said, we have a lot of school systems um, that are near the James River. So all of their students are familiar with that body of water. So that makes it a little bit easier for us to work with those school systems um, that, you know, they already kind of know about it. And really we are, you know, the, the laboratory outside. Um, we can do all the, um, so an abiotic test is a non-living factor. So we test temperature, nitrates, turbidity, phosphorus, dissolved oxygen, um, all these things. And then, so you're not just connecting to those science standards, we're able to integrate all of the STEM aspect as well. So you have the science, the technology, the engineering and math that we'll have in all of our stations. Um, mm, okay. So what we usually will have, um, and we tailor depending on what area of the watershed that you're in. So we have four offices in the state and we have three educational centers. So I'm the upper educational center. We have one in Richmond and we're actually getting ready to build a brand new river center in Richmond uh, wow. and have one in Williamsburg as well. So each of those areas tailors their education based on what we have going on here. Um, so the state fish of Virginia is the brook trout. Um, so we'll talk a lot about the brook trout and the specific conditions that they need to survive. So looking at those abiotic factors, like they need cold water. So that's temperature that we can test for. They need high levels of dissolved oxygen. So all of these things we're testing for correlate to the importance of are brook trout. Brook trout are also indicator species. So we'll tap into keywords like that that are important because an indicator species gives you an idea of how the environment or how the ecosystem is doing around that species. So if that stream can support a brook trout or mini brook trout, then we know that we're doing pretty well just by finding that biotic factor. So that living factor. And then as we go like downstream or to our other offices, we have other things that will bring into our conversation um, from our, our number one pollutant is sediment in the James River. And that's also for the overarching Chesapeake Bay watershed. So how can we fix sediment? 
Um, so that's always a conversation that we'll talk about with our students. We have this really cool interactive model called an Enviroscape. Um, so students will be able- what is it called? Enviroscape. Enviroscape, okay. And that is a plastic model that shows essentially in the entirety of a watershed and how human actions have an impact on our tributaries, those smaller bodies of water, and then even the larger Chesapeake Bay or whatever body of water that you want to say it is. Um, so we'll, we're able to add like, let's say cocoa powder to represent sediment. And then the students will be able to see the process of runoff happening okay. or the be able to see that process of erosion happening. Um, and then we're able to talk about things like impervious surfaces, which is a surface that water cannot infiltrate into and mm -hmm. how predominantly in cities you have those areas like your blacktop, the roof of a building, uh, parking lots, things like that, uh, and how they impact our watershed. So taking okay. real life things that they have in their backyards or they learned in their textbook and showing them on the river or near the river. And um, then we, because those couple things we've been talking about are kind of negative and we don't teach doomsday. So what we always will do is like spin that to where, yes, these things are bad, but with mm -hmm. your everyday actions, we can fix these things. So yeah. if that is picking up trash, taking shorter showers and things like that because in the space that we work in when you're talking about climate change or anything in the negative it can be very daunting or you know bring your spirits down a little bit and we don't want that to happen yeah. uh, we definitely want to build the spirits up of our students and really show them that the work that we're doing the things that we're teaching are able to be changed so all of these things kind of go into the larger organization and what we do. So every two years, we produce something called the State of the James, which okay. is essentially a report card of all the abiotic factors and biotic factors that are in or near the James River. We're able to, bit, we're able to take bits and pieces of that and also bring those into lessons as well. So one of the best things that is going on on our state of the James is our bald eagles. So bald okay. eagles, if you're familiar with their story, 50 plus years ago, we had no bald eagles in the area. The greater Chesapeake Bay watershed. I do remember it was like an issue. Um, yes. People, so, folks were concerned. Yeah, it was a major concern. This is the bird that represented our nation. Um, they are, uh, they're still an endangered species. But we have done phenomenal jobs at banning the chemicals that were causing harm to their reproductive system and then reintroducing them and then keeping their habitat at a really good level. So mm, they're at okay. the end of our food chain. So that's another lesson that we'll talk about is our food chains and food webs. So there's many things that we can kind of talk about. Like this is what our James River food chain looks like. This is mm -hmm. what the food like. And then we can talk about if we were to have a pesticide that impacted this part of our food chain, how that interacts with the rest of our food chain. It's a really good life lesson that these students can learn because, again, we're not just making these things up. It's not just yeah. about kids on the river and having a good time. That is a huge component. We want them to get on the river and have a good time. Yeah. But we also want them to go home with the hard science uh, side of things as well. So that all of those things and all those things that you can probably remember learning in science class in elementary, middle school and high school, we bring those lessons into the field and make it real. Okay. One of the best things that students walk away with is also the ability to get on the river. So throughout our whole watershed at all of our offices, all the students are offered the opportunity to either paddle in a canoe or kayak. And Ooh, then the lower James, uh, essentially in our uh, Richmond office to the bay, uh, we have boats down there to where students can get onto boats. They can do a fish trawl, mm -hmm. which essentially like a big net that's dragged at the bottom. It catches the fish that are in the river at that time. So the students, they're not just looking at pictures of these fish. They're actually getting able to hold these fish. 
They're seeing Blue Crab. Wow, that's great. They're seeing uh, Shad. They're seeing uh, this really cool fish called a hog choker. It's essentially okay. like a flounder or a fluke, but a freshwater species. It's flat. It has eyes on both sides. Um, so if you can imagine, like, both of its eyes are up here, very flat, really cool. <laughs> and it got that name from the Great Depression uh, when these farmers didn't have much to feed their hogs. Uh -huh. uh, and if the fish goes down head first, it's nice and easy. But if the fish is eaten tail first, it's kind of rough like sandpaper. Uh -huh. And then the hogs. So, so they ate that specific, they fed them that specific fish? Yes. Um, wow. It's very abundant uh, in the James River, uh, as well as other fresh bodies of water. Um, so really, and that's just the common name. You know, all these species have scientific names, uh, but it's just a fun common name that many people know of. So okay. students are getting able to see those fish. Um, they're getting able, you know, they're being able to see other things. Like up here, we kind of focus on macroinvertebrates. Um, which is a small organism that you can see that doesn't have a spine. Those are okay. also species of water quality. Um, they're at the very bottom of our food chain. So, What would know, be an example of one of those? An example of one of those everyone is very familiar with once they metamorphosize is a dragonfly. So okay. a dragonfly starts its life in a body of water. Um, mm, that's you know, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, also, mosquito larvae, black fly larvae, crane fly larvae, Dobson fly larvae, mayflies. Um, I can go on and on and on about all the macros. Also, your bivalves, so your freshwater clams, your freshwater mussels, uh, your oysters, they all fall into that. Um, and they're all indicator species. Um, they are very, there are several categories of sensitivity. Um, but some of those species are very sensitive to pollution. So if you're finding those organisms, if their students are finding those organisms, that lets them know, oh, OK, well, this body of water is able to support this life. So it's actually a clean body of water. So it's very interesting, intriguing. You see a lot of light bulbs like, ding, all right, now, you know, just because the James River is brown doesn't mean it's disgusting. Yeah. So it's... <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's so much. And I can go on and on and on about our lessons. I really do love everything that we do and just the overall experience that our students are able to walk away with after yeah. the first time for kids getting on the water, first time for kids seeing a fish, touching a fish in mm -hmm. real life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is incredible. Um, we have many school systems that see this and how important it is and how it directly aligns with the standards of learning tests that they're taking to the pacing that they're going throughout the year. And there's many different types of learners. I was the type of learner that needed to physically touch to see um, just reading in a textbook. It didn't always stick with me. Um, so we're providing all the opportunities for our students to learn and be successful and retain this information versus just kind of, oh, I passed the fourth grade, now on to the next, and I don't right. need science. And, um, right. So, yeah, and it's so important for the school systems to see because we have large school systems, specifically a shout out to Henrico County in Virginia that put into their annual budget for all of their students to come out with us because they seen the impact of this educational experience. And we didn't reinvent the wheel with these educational experiences. So um, some of these lessons that we are using correlate to other textbooks that are out there. Um, and one of our largest partners is the National Oceanic Atmospheric Association. Um, okay. And they have a called a MIWI. That's the acronym, but it's called a Meaningful Watershed Educational Experience. Okay. So if you traditionally, um, a field trip is just a day, you know, maybe four hours if you have that long. And we have seen and studies have seen the impact. It takes a little bit more than just a one day experience. So these meaningful watershed educational experiences are four parts. 
Okay. The first part will come into the classroom. So we're meeting them at a common ground the students are comfortable with. Everyone goes to school. You should be kind of comfortable going to school. And we meet them in school. <clears throat> we go over an intro lesson. This is what we'll talk about today. This is what we'll experience during our field trip. So after that, we go into the second part of the MIWI, which is the field experience, which they'll come out, they'll do stations with us, they'll get on the river, they'll get their hands dirty. And then after that, we do a stewardship project. So okay. where the students are actually taking action. So they're doing a tree planting, they're doing a cleanup, they're doing public service announcements. All these things to, again, reiterate, to reemphasize everything that they learned from their in-class lesson to their in-field experience and now during their stewardship component. And then lastly, right. they, thank you, there's a reflection component. So all of this, we don't just want them to forget about it. We want them to right. reflect on the experience throughout the year. So that- Oh, throughout the entire year, that's good. Correct, yeah. So usually we'll come into the classroom in the fall. We may have them come out uh, with us in the spring on a field experience. And then right after that, we'll do a service component. And then lastly, they'll have that reflection. Um, and there's been so many studies to show the impact of these meaningful watershed educational experiences. And we're able to bond with the student. You know, it's one thing for a student to just say, hey, Mr. Charles is trying to give me direction, but I don't know Mr. Charles from Adam. Um, and my analogy of working with any of these students is like a bank account. So when you first open your bank account, you can't just go to your bank and like, let me get $500,000. Well, sir, you right. didn't deposit $500,000. <laughs> Excuse you me. Skip this step. <laughs> yeah. So the kids are the same way. You have to, you have to deposit into them before you try to pull anything from them. Yeah. And a lot of people will just try to, I should have respect because I'm the teacher. No. Like mm -hmm. you can't build respect until you actually earn that respect. Yeah, because they're so, humans. <laughs> exactly. They're humans. They're just like you and I. So with that, these meaningful watershed educational experiences really allow us to bond and build and invest into these students. So then we are able to have that draw. We are able to pull out from them to actually make changes in our environment in the future. That's magnificent. And um, like you said a few times uh, during your description, a lot of this is, sounds like a great life lesson. You know, we know that um, throughout life, nobody can predict what's going to happen in life. And of course, you know, kids are going to experience the ups and downs. They're going to experience the having to provide for yourself. They're going to experience the, you know, uncomfortable moments, being around people and things that you're unfamiliar with, um, the need to discover and explore and test and try all of those different things. And while, you know, the way I'm really seeing it is like, while you cannot um, rush that process for a child, the great part about nature is you can give them insight into what that process looks like from a, the perspective of the organisms and the natural things going around them, which is really cool. Um, and, and the fact that you all make this like a long-term thing they get to reflect um, can really make a huge impact on a child, no matter what economic background they're coming from. So. I feel like that's, I mean, you know, uh, that's just such a, a powerful thing. And um, the environment, like you said, is something that is taught in textbooks, but to actually be out there with your hands in it, we all know that experiences change people, including children. So then being out there in the midst of it is transformative. Thank you. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, maybe from more of a philosophical perspective, like what do you think the world is taking too long to realize about the way that we educate children and how are you working to change that? Yes, yeah. so that is a big question. Um, I love it um, because I think like we need our school systems and you know, this is not a shot at them, but most of our public school systems are very cookie cutter. So you have like, you know, this is how it should be. You know, this is how students should learn. And these are the options for our students. Not all students are the same. If you have 20 students in a class, all 20 are different. Mm -hmm. So having the opportunity for, can't provide them 20 options, 
right. but more than just one cookie cutter option. Yeah. To, you know, there is public school, there is private school, there is independent schools, there are charter schools, there are home schools. Yeah. All these different entities have different curriculums that fit the different needs of our students. Mm -hmm. So what we are able to do as a conservation nonprofit organization that educates thousands of kids is tailor our lessons based on the entity that we're working with. Okay. So we work with the teacher and their pacing, regardless what school or entity that they are coming from. And then we are able to dive a little bit deeper. Okay, well, we have blank amount of um, non-English speaking students. So we're able to then tailor it to have translation into different languages. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of our school systems, if you are going to school in America, you have to speak English and you have these English written instructions. Um, and then there is the opportunity for ESL classes and things like that. But it's very pushy to have English as that here is everything in English. We are able to tailor to different languages. Um, and then also we are able to tailor to the different needs. So if we're thinking about students with disabilities, if that is special education or an IEP um, or different you know, learning styles, we can do that. We can have smaller group settings to where we don't have all 20 students and, you know, one large group, we're able to divide those in half or even in quarters to really uh, have more one on one aspects to where making sure the students are retaining what we're delivering mm -hmm. and access. Uh, we are trying our very best to be more inclusive to people that may be wheelchair users okay. or may you know, use different type of walking apparatuses to where you know, all of our facilities, we are trying to get them to be ADA accessible to where that's not another barrier because it has been a barrier. So once you leave that school that we know is ADA accessible and no matter what my child's needs are, they can be met in school. And we are starting to tailor our facilities to meet that same need. Okay. So it's very interesting um, to be able to work with all the different entities because we have students that come out that are in advanced proficiency, let's say earth science, and mm -hmm. we're able to talk at a very high level of science. And then that same lesson may be at the same, you know, 10th grade earth science at a private school or independent school. So the flexibility that we have is abundant, um, you know, we are always trying to correlate to the standards of learning, but once you're in a charter school or private school or independent school, we can kind of tailor it to what their needs are. And maybe it's more uh, hands-on or more correlated to something else that wouldn't be specifically written into the standards of learning. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my feedback on that and how we're able to, uh, we're very malleable. That's a good word for our educational programs because we work with everyone. That's cool and so important because um, I know a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are very much advocates for, or maybe if not yet, this is the first time they're hearing um, about really, you know, look into what the future of education is. And, uh, you know, it is inclusive. Um, it's differentiated. You know, it is, you know, like you said, ADA accessible. Um, it's, all, it's those things that we maybe for some time no needed to happen. But I feel like now that we're at a period in time where folks like yourself and other people who are advocates for, um, and not just advocates, but change makers in the fields of uh, revitalizing the way education is done. And like you say, you get in those charter schools, maybe the homeschool umbrella groups, you have more flexibility. Um, but, you know, educating children in a way that works for the child so that we can make sure they're actually being educated and not talk to or simply observing because that's that's really important. Um, and so, uh, right, there's so much that we could talk about um, and you guys' website has so much information. Of course, you have the programs that folks can come to if they're in the area. Um, but if people did want to learn more about what you're doing or get involved or maybe connect with you, 
um, donate, whatever it is, what's one way that, or a couple of ways that they could get in touch with the organization? Yeah, so selfishly, I'll start with myself. Um, I am on all platforms from Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, uh, all those things. Oh, so you're really uh, on all of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and my handle is Benny underscore Johnson underscore III. Um, just taking the middle name, last name, and I'm the third. Um, so I can be found on all those platforms. And then our or our work, uh, we are the James River Association. Um, so all of us, all of our work can be found at thejamesriver.org. That's yeah. our website. Um, and then if you look us up on Instagram, Facebook, uh, also LinkedIn, um, you can find our work there. And it's the James River Association. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot of good resources on there. Definitely follow us to keep up to date on all of the action and all of the things that we're doing within the watershed. Um, we produce blogs. We do a lot of community action. Um, so even if you're not in the James River watershed, there are many resources on our website from how to garden with native plants. Um, also, there is like how to um, take action in your backyard, um, you know, how to be a good steward of the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Um, so there's a lot of good things that can be pulled from our website that aren't specifically to Virginia. Um, they are essentially good to the greater Chesapeake Bay watershed. So from New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, okay. West Virginia, Delaware, and Virginia, all of these things are very applicable to all of those states. Okay, awesome. So as you all see and hear that you can't miss them <laughs> they're on every platform. Um, and also, if you're not in Virginia, there are resources that speak to all of us that we can all go to um, on the, basically uh, pretty much along the East Coast. Um, and so, Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for dropping so much knowledge. Thank you for your leadership and representation in the field. Um, and we look forward to seeing more great things come from your life and also the uh, James River Association. Well, thank you so very much for having me. It was my pleasure to share my knowledge and the work that we're doing here in the James River Watershed. And definitely just take action. I really do appreciate all of you for listening and being here today. So what'd you think? How will you take what you learned today on the Ed Gap Evolution podcast to make sure that more children and families know that they have more options for building a magnificent future? If you like what you heard and want to get notified when the next episode goes live, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll notify you when the next episode is out. Don't forget to check the show notes where I share information on today's guests. And yes, we do have a website. You can always pop in on us at www.eggapevolution.com. Again, I'm Mariah Phillips, and I leave you with this. Embrace the evolution, y'all.